G'day humans, welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. Do you have any friends who have become a little too obsessed with certain dangerous ideas and have had their brains Twitterfied or onlineified, who are starting to do their own research about secret things like vaccine side effects or how the climate hoax is being perpetrated by the left or lockdowns were actually a way of getting us all used to the barbarity of authoritarianism so that uh, the United Nations can swoop in and enslave us all. It may not be that extreme. It may just be people who've uh, meandered a little off the path of what you might regard as being sanity. I have uh, many such people, mainly in my professional life, not my personal life, thankfully. Uh, And I wanted to understand more about this phenomenon, about what's going on. When I spoke with Sam Harris a few weeks ago, the vast bulk of the reaction that that podcast got online was arguments about the intellectual dark web and whether or not people like Majid Nawaz and Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein and Dave Rubin and Sam Harris and Douglas Murray and a bunch of other names, whether these cultural commentators who are regarded as being part of the sort of alternative media ecosystem, a combination of scientists, critics, commentators, podcasters, whether these people were always doomed to be tinfoil hat wearing conspiracists or whether to varying degrees one or another, they sort of just meandered in different ways off the path and why a disproportionate number of them had done so. And some people are very angry at Sam for ever having, quote unquote, platform to these people as if like platforming is a thing. I get frustrated by that term. Um, you know, it's possible for me to platform or not platform people on my radio show on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation because that's the public broadcaster and it has a certain imprimatur on it. But on my own podcast, on my own gig, I mean, I can talk to whoever I want to. It's not really like platforming them. It just depends on whether or not you ask them the right questions. I could talk to, you know, I don't know, uh, Vladimir Putin. Wouldn't mean that I'm endorsing everything that he that he does or that he says. So anywho, uh, there's this big debate about like, was it ever appropriate to be in a cohort with these people and in conversation with these people in the first place? Were they always doomed to be crazies? And uh, during that process, uh, today's guest hit me up and said, would, you, would I be willing to talk about Dave Rubin for an article that he was writing? Now, Ross Anderson is a journalist uh, who's better respected amongst important people than he is known amongst the lay. And I'm hoping that that can change because he's done a huge and magnificent piece about the online right-wing gay commentator Dave Rubin. Uh, in Quillette. It's called All About Dave, the tragic rise of former comedian, liberal, and Angelino Dave Rubin. He's also written interesting pieces about Stephen Crowder. I mean, basically, this whole sphere is his beat. He writes about American culture and politics. He's written for LA Magazine, The Dispatch, The American Conservative, Arc Digital, Spiked, Outspoken, Tablet, a whole bunch of places. In fact, he was a, he was a fellow at Tablet Magazine. And uh, David Frum has been tweeting favorably about his uh, his article on uh, Dave Rubin. Eli Lake's been tweeting favorably about his article on the uh, the collapse of Kanye West. 
uh, entitled Black Skinhead. Basically, I wanted to pick Ross's brain about what's happened. But what's great about Ross is he's a smart enough guy that our conversation naturally meanders into other areas, such as is the criminal justice system racist? And is ChatGPT really conscious? And if it is, is it racist? And will we all ever get along? Anyway, I had a great time. I hope you enjoy this one as well. A conversation with the one and only Ross Anderson. people like complaining at the moment about like google search quality and it always strikes me as very odd because i've used i haven't used google in like four or so years because I, I use i use vivaldi as my main browser and then i've used like neva as my search engine i tried brave for a while and mm. and it's it's, a, it's an odd thing where it's i think it's one of these situations where I, I find this with like youtube too that people think that their subscription their subscriptions box what everyone else's is and that their twitter experience is what everyone else's is so you judge it against <laughs> that and you kind of forget that no, no no this is tailored to you what's neva so neva is it's it's actually supposed to be premium but frankly they haven't really like it's supposed to be a paid service that you pay five dollars a month for but they haven't really mo- sort of set up the model well because there's a free tier that gives you basically everything you need Hmm. and it's a private search engine that it allows you to integrate as well your own files so like sync your google drive and office so you can search within terms so um if i'm searching something about josh zepps for instance it will search the net just as any other search engine will do but it'll also show any of my emails with you or this sort of thing it'll show up your twitter um, and allows really great integration it's it's just i i found it a really great search engine um, is this again just point, like compared to Google? Is the selling point that it's not stealing your data, or is that incidental? yes? So it's 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 highly it uses a lot of data, but the whole point is that there's no it, there's no advertising whatsoever. So it uses the data for a really tailored experience. Um, and so, for instance, as well, if you search like best TVs, right? There's mm. in Google, it's useless because it's just stacks of Amazon ads, right? In mm. Neva, mm. it's actually curated based on sort of you know, if Wirecutter has an article on best TVs and they recommend mm. for your budget option, you can spend $7,000 on TV. And, um, right. But they'll, they'll sort of tailor that for you. And I just find it just, and then it also does the Brave Search does this as well. They do um, uh, conversation snippets, I think they're called. And it's basically, so it shows you within Reddit or within, um, you know, different sort of web, you know, code code snippets and this sort of thing so if you want to search up how to add some widget on your html you can just type it in how do i do this and it'll show you up the code snippet from some other forum where someone's discussed it or you know what i mean this sort of thing it's it ends up being really handy i like i wouldn't i wouldn't move back to same with like vivaldi my browser just the same sort of things where there's these tools that you get used to and i jump on a relative's computer to help them with something i'm like right yeah this is what google's like i forgot that yeah yeah that's funny because i've tried a bunch of well, not a bunch. I've tried like DuckDuckGo and the usual mm-hmm. go-tos and nothing is nearly as good as as Google search for me. Yeah. But yeah. So the I, way, the I reason like the flaw with, the flaw with DuckDuckGo is that they largely, basically you have a couple of search APIs that everyone sort of 
jumps off. So a lot of private search engines, they're basically just using Google's or Bing's. So DuckDuckGo is reliant on Bing's internal search. So you're essentially searching Bing with lots of stuff stripped down and some of the right. That's why it's sort so of bad. magic source. Yeah, they, they have more stuff in it now. They had a, I wrote a piece for Tablet on search engines a while ago. And at that point, they were more Bing reliant. They're less so now. And Bing has improved too. Um, but but that that is the main problem. Whereas Neva and Brave both use their own um, unique search, um, which is why you tend to get better results. Um, Brave's pretty good too. If you use like Brave browser, it integrates well. Um, mm. So so yeah, I, I think it's one of these things of um, that we're gonna get like premium software of this kind as people are more conscious that they don't want their data leaking everywhere. But yeah. also we don't want these fully private no data solutions a are you know they're not practical and b they, they strip you of a lot of features you want you know what i yeah. mean like yeah. that that integration that really customization that's great that's what we want we just don't want it that you know i can buy access to a million people's information for five well, bucks that's right. yeah yeah exactly okay i'll try out i'll check out vivaldi um yeah what uh what got you interested in the international in the international dark web makes it sound like an international cabal of uh, i'm gonna try and purchase some things on that yeah the, yeah the international dark web er, the eric weinstein gives you pirated movies <laughs> that's right well, i'm sure he probably does at some stage uh what so what got you interested in the intellectual dark web or are you just interested in dave rubin um so sort of a bit of both so i wouldn't i wouldn't write an article on other figures of the international inter, i'm getting your stubble now <laughs> in the dark web the idw i wouldn't i probably wouldn't write a piece on another idw figure i wouldn't write a piece on brett weinstein or something like that um because i don't find them um sort of personally interesting enough from from a story perspective i found their ideas interesting at points so you know some of them i still do but their story isn't isn't necessarily interesting as people in a way that makes for a compelling article. Mm. Um, that was different for Dave because I found his story to be generally quite interesting and unusual. Um, but but I really, I, well, I think that there's this a he's very archetypical in terms of this disaffected liberal. Um, I mean, I sort of fall in that vein. I I think you and I both do. Yeah, I'm sort of annoyed by. You know, I, I, I pay for the New York Times and I, you know, I like a lot of the New York Times and I'm glad that David French is and John McWhorter is on the op-ed page and I, you know, and I read great stuff and they did a great piece on bird flu. And then I read some piece about how we need to recon, you know, the everything written about the new weight loss pills are basically how, you know, exercise doesn't matter. And, I, you know, and there's so many things on there that are just absolutely maddening. Um, mm. So I, I fit into that and, and so many th just the... You saw this with Brexit too, a complete denial on much of the political left that that immigration could at all be of any interest to anyone and, and that could be of any concern or and or for any reason other than know. bigotry. Exactly. Yeah. And same with, you know, you only, you know, globalization with manufacturing. There can only the only reason to be concerned about that is because of some xenophobia. And there's not like legitimate reasons that people may be aggrieved about it. Um, mm. So I so so I would sympathize with a lot of the tenets of disaffected liberalism, um, if you use the, the phrase. Um, and, and Dave is the is the archetypical example of that. He is cited in every article where the term is mentioned. Um, 
But he's so, so, so bad at it because he because which is what's interesting. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, so what's interesting about? I feel like the first ten percent of why don't we explain to people who Dave Rubin is? Should we start there because not <laughs> everyone is in the side our bubble? I'm first those people. I kind of feel sorry for them for what I'm about to do. Um, <laughs> but so Dave Rubin is. Dave Rubin is many things, but depending on when you stop in in Dave Rubin's life, Dave Rubin is either a up-and-coming stand-up comic in New York who comes out as gay and does more work in that space. He is a Young Turks host of a sort of variety show on there once a week. Young Turks was an independent... Yes, uh, YouTube left-wing YouTube network. That was still the most viewed YouTube channel of all time, I believe. Uh, Sorry, YouTube news channel of all time. And... um, and then at another point you stop in, he is a sort of independent um, interviewer in the model of Larry King, who was a sort of, who hosted him on his network and was a mentor to Ruben. But if you check in on now, he's going to be telling you that the war in Ukraine, in Ukraine is a lie and the vaccines don't work and sort of bootlicking of the most vigorous variety for um, Ron DeSantis. Um, and, um, and, and he, Frank actually just announced, I think today, a series of videos he's going to be doing compilating his journey of leaving the left. Um, and I mean, yeah, and how it, much can he milk out of this story of leaving the left? <laughs> we, get it. we get it. You were nominally left wing at one point, and you're a constitutionally a conservative hack. We get it. Like, <laughs> you, get it. Like, you thought you were left wing before you started thinking about things. And then when you started thinking as carefully as your brain is capable of thinking about anything, you decided that you're a conservative. That's fine. I, th- I think he is like. I think people I, like I have a line in the piece that that he isn't stupid, which I think is one of the most debated um, or contentious yeah, lines in the piece. Yeah. Um, but but I, I genuinely don't think he is. I think it's an example of sort of that old relative that relative you sort of vaguely know who for all of his life just like works on boats or something, and then randomly out of nowhere one year starts going on about politics, and you're like where did this come from? This is someone who's never cared about politics in their life, but is then vigorously, this just intense passion about politics. And I, I think Dave is akin to that, that he just, he wasn't, he wasn't particular. he wasn't political in this comedy much. Um, mm. He wasn't particularly politically interested in much of things that he wrote. The only things that were interested were sort of gay cultural issues and tangential things about gay marriage. But, you know, he, he was no Andrew Sullivan. Um, no, no, never an intense uh, thinking of the philosophy behind it or anything. Um, My goodness, there are so many respects in which he is not Andrew <laughs> Sullivan. Indeed, it's just one. It's just one. Um, yeah, yeah. Literary style, uh, ability, uh, clarity of thought, independence of mind. Shall I go on? I would even say wet. Um, I'm wet, not sure if you saw his his yeah. post about the the balloon. Them and he no. he requested Ooh, Andrew somebody. Dave? Uh, Dave, not Andrew. Uh, Dave asked somebody, um, could somebody send him a picture of Eric Swalwell's face in the balloon so the balloon is moving along by his farts or something like that? And then somebody mocked this up and sent it to him and he retweeted it. Like, it's kind of like somebody who has listened to <sighs> hours Sorry, at this point of Eric, his early coming. Eric Swalwell? So he was a congressman who became quite notor- notable because he was on, I forget which, I believe it was security committee, um, but was notable because he 
slept or knew with the Chinese spy, which was on his stuff, and his sort of one oh, of these yeah. one of these one of these people who I think is probably a f- an okay average member of Congress among the hundreds that are there that otherwise would be unremarkable. Except unfortunately, he logged onto Twitter and therefore right. spends much of his time, um, you know, being energized there in a way that is personally unflattering, but probably increases his donations. Um, yeah, okay. and I, there was some incident where he on mic there was a noise and people this got ginned up among various because people they thought it, because it was a fart. Yes, and right. maybe it was. I don't care. And, um, I don't care. But... I mean, talk about, <laughs> talk, about bringing, talk about deriving all of your kind of uh, like your lols from so far inside the bubble. Like, yeah, the number, of, the the amount of the the amount of two online things that you need to know to even get the joke about the balloon and Eric Swalwell is like, <laughs> dude, go outside and climb a fucking mountain. You know, just go it's and even, climb a tree. It's like a levels of complexity, not complexity, but you know what I mean. Levels you have to get for a you joke. You need to know about art. You need crap. to know about a Chinese person. You need to know about this. You need to be upset at this obscure Congress person. Uh, anyway, we can go into the. Into I mean, it's again, it's not the worst joke about the balloon that's been it's out there, bad. but it's but, pretty bad. Balloons it's pretty bad. Them. Yeah. Um, okay, so he's a he's an apolitical stand-up comic who gets yes. essentially becomes political when and why. Um. So in his uh, the exact it's it's a gradient. It's not like you know the term somebody was radicalized is is used a lot by glossy magazines um and it's nice to pen a specific point at which something does it um david's not quite that it's sort of you know that's that quote about like bankruptcy about it very slowly and then all of a sudden yeah uh, um it, it so happens really slowly and then exactly um you know so he had a poli sci degree he um would make jokes about bush occasionally about how he was a retard and stuff like this um so very light engagement with it um through his stand-up then he goes into radio um this is after coming out and he sort of talks about gay issues more his radio show is a sort of quite uh, a very light take on gay culture and affairs um interviews people from like don jr to um some of the people on the view he was he was a big fan of and this sort of thing and so again none of this is very political at all um and then he gets this opportunity somehow linked through kelly carlin uh, george carlin's daughter um to work at the young turks and the young turks is this as we say a sort of a left-wing uh, youtube network that uh, they do a main news show hosted by uh, anna kasparian and cenk Uger. and but they also did at the time a range, and this is 2013, 2014, they did a, a wider range of offerings. So they did sports programming and they did TV and film stuff. And in the case of Dave, they were bringing him on to do a sort of a panel show where he'd bring in some comedian friends that he had known, like uh, Melissa Rausch, who ended up on the Big Bang Theory, who, who he had met um, doing stand-up comedy. Um, and he would sort of bring them on to talk about the sort of light topics of the day. There was you know one of his still his most popular clips on his youtube channels from this period of like um of mia khalifa the porn star stands up to her haters and how condoms have got more fun and quite a lot of coverage of like sex robots um hard political stuff um so in in his mind it was at this point that he became 
that he was, you know, very left-wing and this was, you know, he was a hard lefty and blah, blah, blah. Um, but really that isn't really evidenced in, sh- in his material. Um, it's, it seems to me very likely that he picked up some things through osmosis, that if you're just working at a place and people all around you have a particular worldview and you're in a political environment and you see mm. yourself as hosting a show that's on a political network, um, then I think it's not surprising that one would accrue certain views by being there. Um, mm. If you work in a restaurant, you'll have more views on food. Um, you know, like it's as it's simple as that. I think you can pick some things up. Um, but it's only when he starts doing, once he leaves there and then leaves the network he goes to and goes to Larry King, um, it's only there and when he starts doing interviews and more interviews that he starts changing. He starts becoming persuaded by various um, arguments that are made by his guests. And maybe you can argue the validity of them, but the reason many of these arguments were so persuasive is not necessarily because they were particularly interesting or persuasive arguments. It's more that he hadn't been a very politically engaged person beforehand. So it's not as though he could steel man the existing argument that they were rebutting. Um, and but why, that, but this doesn't make much sense because the first people, the first politically aware people who he's surrounding himself with are on the extreme left. Yes. So why doesn't he go down that rabbit hole? Um, I mean, so, if the explanation is he's just he's just absorbing through osmosis mm-hmm. what is around him, and sort of regurgitating it, and doesn't have the 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 breadth of political understanding to strengthen the uh, the opposing ideas that the, his cohort are attacking, why doesn't he just like a little duckling go along with that? Just keep swimming in that pond. I th- I think the reasons would be would be two front one one you could simply say is a matter of time which is that when he's doing his show, he, he is, you know, trying to build out his own independent thing. He's doing quite a lot of these conversations and it's happening quite a lot and, and bringing in guests, you know, he's wanting to be friendly with them and that's his whole atmosphere. So you're more inclined to that. Whereas though he did work there, he was doing it. It's a once a week show. Um, it wasn't though he was doing eight hours a day at the news, re- you know, at the news desk and in the, in, you know, in the writer's room and this sort of thing. Um, so that's one argument. I, I find that somewhat persuasive to a degree. The other issue is that he has been um, a very strong Zionist. That's the one belief that he sort of kept from college um, all the way through. Um, and the Young Turks, I'm not sure if this shocks you, um, doesn't necessarily have as favorable a view of Israel. Mm. Um, so I think that sort of um, always put clarify, him at a slight when distance. When Zionist in the context of the American right, it does not mean strictly what the term Zionist no. means, meaning just a person who believes that Israel should be a home for the Jews, but it means a person who is uh, gives a lot less weight than the moral center of gravity of the planet does to the concerns of people who've been dispossessed, the Palestinians who've been dispossessed by the creation of the Israeli state and who've been subsequently shat upon and uh, dispossessed. Uh, so, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, but I, I mean, hard, even... hard right. Uh, uh, he has sympathy for the Israel for the Israeli hard right. Uh, to be fair, I, I would say that. I'm not sure how popular even the lighter form of of Zionist and simply the dictionary sense. I'm not sure how popular that is in the 
um, among sort of the Young Turks camp. I'm sure there are many. Um, uh, this is pure speculation. I'm sure there are people there who hold a to the river to the sea view of sort of it shouldn't exist right. as a state. Fair um, enough. So, so I think you this comes this. I, I mean, this just yeah. reinforces the polarization of uh, of American politics. Yes, that you have on the one hand people who say, Israel "Don't worry, there are mad views everywhere." <laughs> Israel has a right to exist, and therefore, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, with forcing an entire people to live in squalid open-air refugee camps in perpetuity. Uh, or the choice B is that the Jews should be driven uh, from that part of the world altogether, <laughs> pushed into the sea. Uh, you have no other option. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is no metal. There is no metal. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so so I think I think that would probably be it. The other the other thing is simply that though the, the I mentioned this in the piece um, that um, he had wanted more money uh, for the show when he was there, um, and he didn't receive that. Um, and started viewing their network in a far more negative light after that. Um, and whereas when he started doing his own show, um, people on the American right were sort of very keen to talk with him. They were very happy to have someone who sort of did a show like Larry King, but was willing to talk about, you know, air pro-Trump views, which which I do think is a genuinely beneficial thing and that long form conversations are good and that you know you will not find a fan of cable news in may um so but, but whereas left-wing guests at the time or that he had early on and um the few that he did um and other notable left-wing people just became more critical of a very soft-handed approach that he took um where you know, Lauren Southern said that the the I think it was Jewish Party was founded by the American American Nazi Party or something like this. And um, you know, Stefan Molyneux he had a very soft interview with Molyneux where Molyneux talks about where Ruben asks like, why is it that different races have there's different violence rates between blacks and uh, black and whites and um, and he says like brain size and um, and stuff like this is mm. st- stuff that is. If you're gonna handle stuff like that, you need to be prepared to treat it in the right way, um, mm. and a sort of quietly affirmative tone, where sort of this is an anti-woke guest. He, they're hate, you know. Katie Hopkins is hated by so many on the left, you know, and you seem perfectly nice, and then you sort of ignore the column where she says that migrants are like cockroaches, and she wants to see bodies in the sea and stuff like this. It's like purely like. I, the term fascist is thrown around far too readily, but it's hard to, you know, it's hard to find something that could have been ghost written by Mussolini <laughs> more than that, um, mm-hmm. you know. And so the so the the point is that the fact of the left trying to silence people and canceling them and deplatforming them and just generally getting its tits in a tangle in a an unseemly way becomes a pretext for then saying, well, now I'm going to elevate, elevate the voices of the people you're trying to silence to, because I'm a believer in free speech. And look, these are old-fashioned, small-l liberal values of like tolerance and free speech. So now let's listen to the content of the of what the cancelled person was trying to say. I mean, I I have the I run into the same problem all the time. Like to have a conversation about the unjust silencing of an issue, take 
you know the most glaring one at the moment which which is trans issues mm-hmm. to have a conversation about how to deal with pediatric transgender questions you know one would ideally want to all be speaking as as with as much generosity and empathy and care as possible and then someone will say something which is a bit offensive that person will get hounded and pilloried and uh, hung, drawn and quartered. And then one's instinct to object to the, to that overreaction motivates me to want to talk to that person about the Mm -hmm. experience of being excluded from public life. But in so doing, you're also somewhat giving voice to the nasty thing that they said in the first place. So how do you talk about the meta question of, what we should be allowed to say without also exacerbating the very parochial non-meta question of the thing that caused the offence in the first place. And, you know, if you're a responsible journalist, then you wrestle with that question. And Dave Rubin has never even come close to thinking it's important, an important question to wrestle with. He'll just go, well, you've been sidelined by cancel culture. Therefore, let's give you a massive platform to just spew whatever it is that got you cancelled in the first place. Right. It's it's also there's a there I mean his intuition on this his instincts to sort of jump for it has served him well and I think served the the, the sort of dialogue if you will well um, in terms of the the notable two examples being Brett Weinstein and Jordan Peterson at the time when they were being sort of lambasted um, I mean particularly with Brett like that was I think people it's easy to dismiss. Brett Weinstein now because of what he says and does, but it is worth remembering how truly insane um, his situation was with this sort of enraged students chasing him around and over nothing. Um, You might need to explain. You might need to remind people who only know Brett Weinstein as a vaccine skeptic now what what he originally did. Yeah, so he was a biology professor at Evergreen College, um, which is sort of a quite elite small college um, where he and I believe his wife also worked there, Heather Hying. And um, he had been there for a while. He'd been, you know, notable sort of among the milieu of left leaning professors. And there had been this thing, a sort of an annual walkout thing where black students would uh, spend the day off campus and to, I think gather off campus um, to some effect. And um, one year they decided to inverse this where they were saying, I, I believe this is correct. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. And um, they basically said, no, we want to do it where white people leave campus. And Weinstein sort of went, well, no, I'm a professor. I'm going to be here. Thanks. I don't really agree with your movement. And uh, that sparked a complete fire up where the the dean was sort of chased into his office and surrounded by people. And he's sort of like, can I go to the bathroom? And they're like screaming at him and, and this sort of thing. Um, yeah, they it held was the a tr- hostage essentially. And, yeah, a truly mad image. They said that the fact that he was, there was video of this, the fact that he was gesticulating with his hands as he was talking <laughs> was a white supremacist uh, like yeah. uh, gesture of power over them. And could he please keep his hands down by his side? And instead of saying, I'm the fucking Dean, <laughs> 
I will I will talk to you how I want to respectfully, and I will use my fucking hands. He was like, oh yes, because oh, he didn't want to be accused of being racist. So it was during this. It was. I mean, this was back in like 2017, right? I mean, this yeah, was yeah. I mean, this was not they they started George very good. Words. Like this no. was before anyone had heard of Black Lives Matter. But this was the canary in the coal mine to many people, and certainly to Brett of something yes. that was happening where he, a Bernie Sanders supporting, you know, civil rights loving lefty yeah. was literally had to have police security protection for his life because white college educated students, mostly white, were getting so upset that he was making an egalitarian argument for anti-racism rather mm-hmm. than what they wanted him to do, which was to stick his white ass at home while uh you know only black students were able to come to campus and he was like i don't think that's the best way to pursue equality like that was deranged Uh, utterly mad yeah so that was that was brett and then how did brett where where did we get to brett as we wander down the path into into dave's transition so being that uh, those um his his intuition to sort of chance to cancelled people pretty quickly like in the brett case that was quite valuable where he had very quickly, I believe sort of the weekend after um, this whole thing went down that he had a call with Brett and, you know, they discussed the whole thing for about an hour, but also just other topics generally. Same with Jordan Peterson. It was one of the first venues that um, Peterson was speaking with was, was too ribbon about the whole kerfuffle that happened with him. Um, and and again, like that, and that launched Peterson's journey to international stardom, um, which has quickly fizzled out. Um, but 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 I think in both cases there was nothing, there was nothing indicative in in those two cases where you would think these people are going to change in a way that is very unpleasant. Um, it's not surprising in either case necessarily. I mean, like very left leaning people. Um, being anti-vax is not exactly a new thing. Um, any Aussie listeners will be familiar with Mullumbimby as not being a <laughs> haven of right-wing sort of, you know, yes. the trad center of Australia. Yeah, has traditionally been <laughs> on the left. As, as so it's not that surprising. Um, yeah. And somebody yeah. who, in in Jordan's case, I think. Um, it's not surprising. The I think he has went to use an expression he said to Rogan about Sam Harris. I think he has gone off the rails in a variety of ways on a variety of topics, um, driven by personal uh, difficulties with a drug issue and a consequently horrific um, medical journey to resolve that. But also that it's not surprising, particularly that his sort of focus of of his derangement on trans issues. It's the same issue that sort of sparked off his whole um, rise to fame. Um, Majid is probably the one that's the most tragic for me out of all of these people. Because mm. um, mm. I, I I found Majid now was, was this, um, is a person who was a sort of ex-Islamist who sort of reformed did this wonderful book uh, with Sam Harris, a sort of conversation about between a... a you know, a Muslim and an atheist, prominent people, and it was sort of exchanging the differences, and it was about tolerance and stuff. And he is now just a, you know, a conspiracy theorist of the most Alex Jonesian variety. I had not of... known this, I, and I have 
actually something inside me has declined to go do too much research about where Marjit is now for that reason. Yeah. Like he was such a, he's so smart. That's another yep. thing that has to do with that really separates a lot of these, the rest of the IDW from mm -hmm. Dave. You know, some of these people are galaxy brained people. I, I copped yep. a lot of shit for claiming in, I think my episode with Sam Harris that mm -hmm. James Lindsay and Eric Weinstein are geniuses. But I don't. I stand by that. I mean, they. I don't. I, I don't know on Lindsay uh, particularly, but but that may simply be that I've only seen people get broken by Twitter, and I've only seen yeah. the Twitter side of James Lindsay, and it's possible there's other sides of him. I don't know. I will. I mean, to be clear, a thousand percent. I will a thousand percent say that Eric's a genius. And yeah, I think, I'm not like, saying these people are wise. I'm not saying no, they have their no. shit together. I'm not saying they have a uh, you know. A <laughs> but often, but... very much not. <laughs> Yeah, but that is one of the characteristics of brilliant people. I mean, sometimes they yeah. can be completely, you know, uh, I'm just talking about strictly on an IQ level. I reckon if you yeah. gave them IQ tests, they would be in the in the genius band. That's just my hunch. I like, I um, think, like, Eric Weinstein's The Portal podcast that he did for a while was just, like, fantastic. I think his, I, I would highly recommend to anyone listening to listen to his interview with Riley Reed, the porn star. It is genuinely pr probably my favorite podcast episode ever. It's just mm. such a great conversation. It's so thoughtful. Um, he treats her seriously like a person. It's not... Um, he even acknowledges that whenever people talk about sex in any context, it sort of makes you giggly in a way, um, which is just every podcast that talks about porn is like that. So no one ever talks about it in a meaningful way. And mm. he pushes past that. He acknowledges it. And then it doesn't color the conversation at all. And I, like, I, I just... I can't give it enough praises. It's such a good conversation. And you can only do that sort of thing when you are very open-minded, you're very brilliant. And and to be clear too, I would separate the change of Jordan Peterson and Brett and Majid. I don't think Eric has changed in the same, anywhere near the same ways. I, th I no, think no, Eric's taste for not. conspiracism is slightly um, uh, too keen, um, mm. certainly for myself. Yeah, and I think he's um, understood. I think that he has a big, um, a blind spot about how the media functions. I think he. Oh yes, that wants, is enormous. Yeah, yeah. He, he's 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 extremely critical of like why isn't the media talking about this and why is the media talking about that? I think if he spent a couple of weeks in a newsroom, he'd be yeah. he'd probably be disabused of much of that because he'd realize we actually are behind the scenes looking at a lot of stuff, and then if it doesn't have you know, a couple of sources and good corroboration, then we don't report on it as news because it's not yet news. Like you're allowed to speculate on it, but we're not going to publish something as news that is not, you know, that is just a hunch. Um, and it's also that you, there's no, like my, a mentor of mine, Mark Oppenheimer at Tablet, like he talked about this with me where that there's, there are rarely grand narratives that we, that we want to string stories together. You want to string the story of how X and Y has failed, but usually it's not like evil conspiracy is rarely the explanation. More often, it's just sort of bundling incompetence and people with mm -hmm. various different interests. And, you know, when I see the, a great example of this, I would say, is regarding the, um, the confidential papers, various paper scandals. I think we probably both also have presidential confidential records because they seem to be bloody everywhere. But like when it happened with Trump, there was all these articles in all these in Washington Post and New York Times opinion section talking about how if any normal person was caught with these things, they would be hung, drawn, and quartered, which is mm. true. 
And then when Biden was found with them, there were a bunch of articles about how there's no classification problem and tracking these things is really difficult and there isn't really a great system in place. And that's also true. But there's but there's no way in hell those two stories are in verse. There's, you know, it's not surprising that one didn't come at one time, you know. Um, but that's not that's not because there was some narrative. It's not where, you know, the the head of the you know, the New York Times opinion board are going, right, we need to get we need to get Trump for this, right? We need to defend mm. Biden for this. It's more just that people have a blind spot about when the Trump thing happened, a lot of left wing journalists are not thinking about yeah, but there is an overclassification problem because it was obvious that isn't why he did it. And then with Biden, because our intuition is to think he probably didn't leave this stuff malignly there, then the, the next logical step is, oh, there's, well, this definitely comes because there's a classification, overclassification problem. I mean, I, I do then, think that you need to, you do need to fight against that instinct. Yes. And so it's it's correct of a person like Weinstein to point out the hypocrisy. And, you know, this is a sure. Matt Taibbi, you know, you can, you can expand this into... The realm of the ever more reasonable person, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as you progress to Matt Taibbi and then uh, eventually to, to to Josh and Ross. Uh, obviously, we are uh, we are perfect examples of journalistic impartiality and perfection. Uh, in, yeah, in of course, the, I do everything flawlessly. Don't you know? In the in the sense that we are interested in these things, but we're also not, uh, you know, we we don't we're not deranged by by them. But the right. so so with the exception of, and I would say that Eric has a has a has a very good point about the the groupthink of newsrooms and the, sure. the fact that it's, just, it's not worth the hassle to most journalists to cop the flack of trying to touch issues that are radioactive in or, or you know that contravene the agreed mm-hmm. wisdom of their peers, and so they don't. So there is a very you know exhausting sort of sameness about about the conventional media. Nonetheless, I, uh, that, you know. I also do think, though, that like, um, you know, to, to your point earlier about you can only report things that you have evidence on when the Hunter Biden laptop story came out, it had all the indications that this had been salted, that this had been even if it's even if some of this is real, the story behind it is so ridiculous and the sourcing is so poor on how it got to there that the chance that this was sort of meddled with information seemed mm. extremely likely also without, i mean I, I wrestle with the time i wrestle with the reactivity of the media like do we always mm. have to be reporting on the the jangling keys in front of our face like a toddler or like are we just a cat with a laser pointer and whoever is in, in control of the laser pointer gets to dictate where we mm. jump it was there was something just fundamentally fishy about a about that drop in the mm-hmm. sense that, and there was, in the sense that it had come into the possession of Rudy Giuliani just right. before an election. And, like, why is it beholden on me as an independent media journalist to dance to the tune of Rudy Giuliani when he wants right. to deliver some salacious information? Like, let me look at it. I mean, I, yeah, I'm really conflicted by it. Like, how long does that just mean that anyone who wants to withhold information from the public sphere? for maximum partisan political gain can do so. And there's nothing, the independent media has no right to push back against that by choosing a timeline of its own on how it publishes and deals with that information. I, I don't know. That my worry too is, yeah, my worry too is is that that intuition of sort of like, let's not jump for Rudy Giuliani. My worry is that I, I wouldn't trust my own intuitions about which is worth jumping for 
and that it wouldn't come out in some biased way. It, you know, mm. I wouldn't, you know, it's not surprising that the New York Post, you know, jumps very excited for it, right? Um, and there are other yeah. news organizations that may have got it or, and, and you know, held because they didn't. And, and I think it's the partisan leaning involved there is relevant. Um, I, I do think too, though, that I do think there's an over coverage problem often um, where there are huge organizations like the New York Times, CNN, AP that have just enormous, Washington Post, that have just huge stuff. They're, they're enormous. They can cover, you know, national issues with, you know, thousands and thousands of journalists on staff. And it is good that they can sort of cover every story. But I don't really see the value in every regional magazine sort of rewriting the story and sort of publishing it. Um, I don't see what yeah. some, uh, you know, some small newspaper, you know, some small magazine sort of, if they're not adding something new, like this is actually, I just did a piece on the Daily Wire versus sort of Stephen Crowder kerfuffle that's been happening at the moment. And, and it didn't make the thing, but one of my chief issues with the Daily Wire is that they have a sort of news site that they pretend is sort of reporting. And they say that what they're doing is sort of in, you know, providing something the New York Times or CNN can't. And more often than not, they are rewriting stories from those publications. Right. They air in those publications first and then are likely rewritten from those publications, but are just adding mm. in their own slant, yeah. essentially. Yeah. 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 And I don't really see the value in that at all um and i think that's that's harmful um so i think mm, you can mm. i think i think the question often is like it depends on the publication it depends on like who's remit you know like i don't you know one of the reasons i, I was a fellow at tablet magazine and one of the reasons i love tablet is that they do do longer pieces and they do sort of just what a they have a good judgment about what is an important thing to cover and they don't necessarily jump on a story simply because it's the trending thing on Twitter. Um, I think smaller publications should do that more often. That yeah. you don't, you yeah. know, and and also because it it stops people from looking like idiots. Um, mm. Mm. There was this thing with like Chat GPT where people tried to get it to swear or say racial epithets or. Um, or make you know it was the most famous example was somebody asking for it to write like a poem about trump or something and mm. it's refused on heated topics and then they asked the same about biden uh, pra yeah sorry a po something praising trump and that said we don't i don't deal in heated topics and the same for biden that happily splurged something up and the explanation that was given by many in the commentariat is this is a coded in bias by the people who are making this and not that no ai chatbots really are a bit of a black box and most of the people who are involved in this really have no clue and are basically as equally concerned as anyone else's and and also that chat gpt is not a is not an information providing vessel this is a this is a conversation simulator it is yeah, also, <laughs> it is doing also, what we do in text data you know, that it is using to inform its conversations is all of the data on the web basically or, and... or stuff that doesn't even exist. Like you ask it, um, the, in Semaphore, there was an example, I forget who wrote the piece, um, but the, the great tech newsletter there. And, and they asked it like, who is who ran the English channel fastest on foot? And it gives like three people in the times they did it. 
Yes, obviously. That's, that's why this is failing the Turing test? Still, I had a conversation <laughs> on, on my radio show with a, a a neuroscientist who who was under the impression that we'd already crashed through the Turing test with things like mm-hmm. ChatGPT, and I was like, I don't think we have. Like, because if you ask <laughs> nonsensical questions, it gives you straight faced answers. Right. Um, yeah. So, and it doesn't seem to have any curiosities of its own. It doesn't. It doesn't mm-hmm. interrupt you halfway through and go. But hang on, I have a few questions about Care Bears. What, right. what what's with Care Bears? You know, like it, it doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. exhibit any of the curiosity that you would expect from even an eight year old child. But what I mean by it being an aggregator of all the information on the web is that if there are a lot more conversations on the web about Trump being a divisive topic than there are about Biden being a divisive topic, mm-hmm. and if all of the conversations on the web uh, about Biden are generally overwhelmed by you know the Biden's policy on China or what he's doing mm-hmm. about this or what he's doing about that then of course a, a mindless chatbot is going to identify Biden conversations as not being right. toxic but Trump conversations as being toxic and I, just, I mean even I, just a, a rudimentary understanding of the kinds of people who inhabit the White House would you know <laughs> lead you to the conclusion that there is nothing uniquely provocative about the Biden presidency in the way that there was about the Trump presidency. So right. Uh, it's part- harder to get railed up about riled up, I should say, sorry. It's hard to get riled up about Ron Claim than, yeah, that's than right. other figures, you know. I, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Right. I, I mean part of the thing too is like these biases within a AI systems are really concerning. Like they are. Um mm. you know, particularly there's a quite famous example of one that was used in a prison system to basically surf the data of inmates and make parole recommendations based on that. And what it was seeing was it was going, ah, so black inmates are have longer sentences and are more violent, therefore they should have shorter parole. And, you know, it's not intending to draw a causal connection there. And there isn't one. Mm. It's just looking mm. at a statistic and it doesn't know what we go, no, that's not real and that's awful. It's just looking at a data set. You know, if bald people in the prison had a were there for more violent and considering skinheads exist, they may well be, it probably would do the same biases. And that's like that's really harmful. Like we, Well it probably does, doesn't it? I mean it, it, it probably it's it, it, since since bald people can contain the cohort of skinheads, there probably is a And bias. just genetically there's something wrong with them, John. Like <laughs> let's speak the truth here. I mean but there probably is. It's just that we're not keenly attuned enough to notice. No, the, exactly. The I mean, that whole thing I still feel weird about. I need to talk to someone who knows more about that than I do because is the is it that the AI is developing biases or is it that the AI is, and this is a very politically incorrect thing to say, is noticing realities that we hate and so we try to mm. gloss well, over? Like is it I noticing think... that there is a higher incidence of criminality among the African-American population in the United States than there is among the white population. I'm not sure if that's true, but if that is true, then is that the thing that it's noticing? And then we go, this is horrendous. How racist, it's, it's turning racist. And is it just I mean, going, the, pro- the I problem know, there I'm... is, yeah, the problem there though is it's not necessarily that it's observational, which, you know, if, if it were just drawing these trend patterns, it would just be lots of patterns and lots of them you'd go, that's nonsensical. Huh, yeah, that's real, but who cares? Like that's a sort of my whole thinking on the sort of race and violence correlation stuff with demographics. I just sort of fall in the sort of Thomas Chatterson Williams, uh, Camille Foster sort of view of like, why do we care about these demographic sort of separations? Um, so I sort of just like, I, mean, I can go, yeah, yeah that may be true, but, but um, yeah, but I'm but just I, saying, so but on, just the issue to... for, sorry, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, as just as a cultural conversation, uh, I'm mm. interested rather than. So, I mean, I think it was Glenn Lowry who said, "You're not going to have a conversation in America that makes sense to everybody about the over incarceration of African Americans until right. you can also have a conversation about the inc- the over representation of blacks committing crimes in America." Mm-hmm. And because you can't have the latter conversation because it's politically toxic and considered racist, you're never going to have an honest conversation that actually resolves anything about the over-incarceration of blacks because people will think people will smell a rat. Yeah. I just, I just don't even know if, I mean, my own particular bias is I don't know if even the over-incarceration thing is, a, is there's, there's an argument that America is heavily incarcerated, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's over-incarcerated. The question is, what kinds of crimes are people being present for? I would, I mean, I'm full, I'm for full legalization of all drugs and all sex work. So for me, there are various crimes that I don't think should be criminal. Um, which sure that applies there, but I have no idea how that fits into a, you know. No, but I'm talking about the disproportionate incarceration sure. of certain races, and I understand that you and I and Thomas and Camille would say, well. That's not the. That's not a metric that we should be getting hung up about. We should be seeking justice for all individuals. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that the the way that the conversation around right. race has gone in the West over the past five years is is such that the number one glaring thing is, uh, question is questions of racial identity. Like that's the that's the thing that we're all getting agitated about. So, but even when it wow. when it comes back to the the AI recommendation, there that's the the key there is recommendation that's the problem it's that it's making it's taking an observable thing which we can argue the value of and then it's inherently saying that it's valuable by making a recommendation based upon it like that's i, I like I, as i say like it if it's observing that bold people are have a higher statistical rate of violence within prisons which may well be true then it shouldn't matter if just your uncle bob who got caught with a joint is in there overnight that it should say he gets no parole because he's probably an, you know, a mass murderer. Um, and that's where the problem is. It's a prom- problem with using these tools in a normative way in the same way right. that I think like chat GPT is super interesting and really fun and, and just a revolutionary piece of tech, but it's not but a just search to clarify, engine. Just to clarify, it's, it's unjust that my my bald uncle gets incarcerated for longer because bald people are more violent yes. in prison. But it's not biased, is it? Well, it's it's biased I mean, in the result not... that it produced. I'm, I, it's just not that I'm not saying that it has a inherent anti-bald bias. It just it has a pro-causal bias or a pro-correlation yeah. bias. I should say. Sorry, it's just seeing any data in the same way that. Maybe I imagine there are fewer gingers in prison, and I don't know. Maybe I mean, I, like I, I, actresses I for. I mean, know. what is a legitimate? You know, if if we know that alcoholics are more prone to recidivism, mm. then should you consider that an alcoholic who's going in is likelier to like? Are there categories where we go? All right, well, here's a plausible causal connection between the fact that between the factor and the outcome. So, you know, in which case, I don't know, maybe people who are on the autism spectrum are less likely to re- reoffend. Uh, mm. Therefore, should they have lighter sentences? Would that be anti non autistic bigotry? Uh, you know, like mm. if Australians are known in the United States to be people who, who are particularly pernicious in, in prisons. Very true. Very true. Should I, you know, should I have a longer sentence or be or should precautions be taken against my wild australian temperament when i'm put into prison or should i should each of us be treated as a completely brand new flower we are all a snowflake and there's no 
conclusions and correlations that can be drawn. I mean, you could I mean, you could take that even broader. I mean, in terms of one of the prison reform sort of efforts that we that people would like is that all sentences are sort of you know that um, if you steal something from a shop, that you know part of the reason part of the reason that um, crime reduces is based not necessarily on the severity of punishment, but the sort of certainty of it. And um, the idea that, you know, shop, you know, shoplifting goes down when shoplifting is consistently prosecuted and it goes up a lot when the governor of California says that you can do it in the middle of COVID. Mm. Um, And so to the, you know, related to that, um, there's an argument among prison reform people who go like, it shouldn't matter what the situation is if you beat your wife. That's just the standard, sort of like a prescription almost in terms of you have X, you get Y. You do right. X, you get Y. Um, which would suggest that we should um, punish people based on a set of things. In that case, it's a, it's a behavior set that you're criminalizing for. But we also recognize that, um, you know, that there are situations where people do things that are that are very different. If If somebody steals something, somebody robs a supermarket and then you arrive at the tent where they and their starving children are we have a lot more empathy than if it's just a if it's a supermodel who just has a thing for stealing crap um right and 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 i so so i think there's a bigger question there of of sort of how we how we penalize i my my thinking is that the my status quo bias if you will is thinking that the current blends that we probably that we have is probably the best um and to the same degree if somebody is an alcoholic and they go into prison for wife beating um then depending on the severity of their alcoholism and i guess their abuse we and how repetitive it is you judge it on on sort of as an individual as it relates to trends um mm. so again if somebody is a not as a co- not as a member of the cohort of alcohol yeah yeah, so in the same way of like if a bald guy comes to prison and it's for stealing it, for being caught with a joint, probably nothing to be worried about regarding his baldness. Right. But oh, if he shot up a local Yeah, but yes, I mean, exactly. Is he, is he My point is shaved, shaved his head and had a swastika tattooed on his scalp or is exactly. he, he has alopecia. If he's getting changed into his prison uniform and there's just enormous eagles tattooed on his chest <laughs> and he's going, I really missed my bike and that leather jacket. You right. know, like if he's saying that and you just sort of knives are falling out of his pockets, mm. probably not an unwise decision We're showing our think. rampant bigotry towards <laughs> the Nazis here. Uh, <laughs> assumptions that they can be more prone to I mean, violence. Which, which, is, which like isn't just, right? Which it, Meaning that if a neo-Nazi who lives perfectly civilly in his town, steals something, there's a decent probability that he's going to get charged harsher yeah. than a non-neo-Nazi, which yeah. is awful for two reasons. One, because it has very little relevancy to shoplifting. I d- don't think the Fuhrer was keen on just sort of steal bagels. <laughs> but but the second the second point is that we we want people in prison for the absolute minimum time necessary. Because if you send more Nazis into prison, mm. all it does is increase the radicalization among a prison population. Mm. So, like, there are unhelpful uh, sort of observations of trends there. I I don't know if you've ever read uh, Peter Moskos. This is a 
wild tangent, but I don't hmm. know if you've ever read Peter Moskos's book, um, In Defense of Flogging. No. Um, it's well, a short I like book. Out of that jib. It's it's very fun. Um, it's a short book, and it's sort of a Charles Dickens mold of of a thought experiment. There were, you know, of, of a and and I actually mentioned Dickens throughout Dickens' observations about prisons, and it's it's based on a contradiction, which is that if say we are you and I, Josh, are both caught for shoplifting again, and um, we're being there, and the judge is told, you know, you're up first, and the judge says, you know, Josh can get a lashing get 10 lashings or six months in prison mm -hmm. then for yourself you'll probably choose the lashing because you think that hurts but it's over quick and that's my life back right but if you see some random stranger who got caught with a loaf of bread you don't want to it seems unjust that people you know right. if we said all prison sentences if if a politician came out today and said we will be replacing all six month prison sessions uh you know sessions with lashings instead mm -hmm. there would be massive yeah, outcry how dare yeah, you exactly those poor people mm. um which which suggests that there's either two things at fault there. Either we are sort of poorly calibrating how bad lashings are, which strikes me as probably wrong. It's probably just that we haven't been lashed before. Um, lashings, I imagine, hurt like an absolute bitch. But we also are really understating how bad prison is. Um, mm. It's sort of prisons are kind of like nursing homes in terms of they're things that exist. And we can, as polite society, mentally cordon them off as not sort of existing. Sort of when people go there, they vanish. Yeah, you know what I mean. A... Not saying they're I mean, equally severe, but I'm saying you send people to a place and they vanish. You're, uh, you're sending your grandparents too, but uh... well, but also, or same thing actually with kids in schools often, right? Which is that part of the reason that it's so great to get your kids started at schools, as far as I'm aware, is part of it's like great. You know, my day, I don't have to have a babysitter. I don't have mm. to, you know, look after. You're sort of disappearing someone conveniently for a period of time. Not that you're yeah. not concerned, obviously, in the same thing. So my, my comparison with nursing homes is no uh, negative statement on nursing homes. I'm sure. I just more mean that you're functionally disappearing someone for a period of time. Yes. Um, yes. And in prisons, I... that's super, super bad because, and, and also for nursing home abuse, it is also bad for that too. But it's really bad in prisons because it means that we sort of, we, we, acknowledge that it's bad in jokes about dropping soap and in prison dramas but we don't actually think like hang on like what is the actual utility of this person who stabbed someone in a drunken fight what is the yeah. actual utility in sending them sending for them several away. years to yeah I mean, my intuition ross about the the choice of a flogging over prison is also one of the unknowability of what's going to happen like there's mm. a certain there's a company we we like predictability and we like sort of knowing uh, what we're going to get and for me if you could guarantee me that the that prison was going to be the best version of prison a swedish prison yeah or you know there are a few in new south wales here in australia as well which are the, which are a model of you know you get mm. to do crafts and you get you know you, everyone's happy supposedly if i knew crafts that, beyond making problem, shivs yeah, that's right. If I knew if making I knew classes <laughs> that no harm was going to come to me, then um, I might choose six months in prison. But hmm. the worst case scenario in prison is so much worse than a flogging. Right. That, that you know, I'd choose the a bit of the devil, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, let's pivot. Let's loop back yes. from criminal justice to the the galaxy brained human beings who are who are making these um, these determinations. Um, so I think we got there because of Eric Weinstein's concerns about the media and about yes. the conversations that we're not having and these people being sort of geniuses in a technical term. But, uh, you know, when I use the term, I would also say that, you know, a, a, 
a conspiracy theorist serial killer who has a big wall full of uh, strings uh, with pins in them that are connecting things that are completely random might also Isn't be necessary. genius. Yeah. Yeah. It may also Isn't be necessarily stupid. Yeah. Um, they might just be finding uh, patterns in, in tea leaves where the patterns don't really exist. So actually very much chat GPT to, re to relate right. to that. It's finding right. patterns in things that it, nobody doubts an AI is intelligent. That's kind of the point. Yeah. And yeah. But it doesn't mean that what it's producing is not highly intelligent garbage. That's right. Matt Iglesias has a good piece, by the way, that, about about this and about the mm. poo pooing of um, uh, the people poo pooing uh, the intel the the consciousness of the self awareness, I suppose, of artificial systems. Um, he's not saying they are conscious. He's just saying the conversation that we have around determining whether they are conscious is going to rapidly disintegrate because we're holding them to a standard that even human beings are not really able to meet. We're a bit fuzzy in our thinking about this. Like mm. he gives a few thought experiments and then sort of concludes like, to what extent am I not uh, meaning making chatbot that is taking in things mm -hmm. around me? Like how much of what we do is genuinely original thought? Like how much of us... How much of what like we how do we've gone Descartes on Substack. <laughs> sort of. How much of what we do is actually, you know, producing Tchaikovsky or mm -hmm. Shakespeare and how much of it is regurgitating things that we've collected like little bowerbirds from yeah, the different of our lives. The, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think the, the to the question of the consciousness um, argument, there's, there was that Google engineer who claimed that Google systems were... Mm. conscious and this sort of thing and he was promptly fired and largely ridiculed from people that um in the space and and i do think that it is kind of a question that we find appealing because it has so many like existential things it's sort of like are there is there life out there it's one of these questions that speaks to who we are and what we what you know what we what our lives mean and this sort of thing are we alone you know if this thing is is alive and sentient in a meaningful way is that you know what does that say about us and in that question of are we just a chatbot but i also do think in ai it is completely the wrong question um the questions are about alignment and sam harris makes this point about uh, sort of an ai targeted missile drone it doesn't really matter if it has thoughts about killing you or is just mm. going to kill you it doesn't really change the outcome. And I think there are more, there, there are far greater risks that are present that, that are less being focused on because of these questions. Yeah, but it's heaps and, more. And they don't change. About it, whether the machines are alive. Sure, sure. That's, that's true. That's a philosophical question. But yes, I you're do, right. I, there are, there I do think in the, same, in the same case, I think that often, actually in a very Eric Weinsteinian point, often the under-discussed topics are, become more dangerous precisely because they're under discussed where AI is novel and interesting and I think could be of extreme risk and threat in the future. But nuclear apocalypse is by far a higher risk, largely because there is a track record of insane levels of incompetence and near misses, but we don't really give much focus. And also because yeah. institutions like the sort of the clock of how many seconds to midnight is completely irrelevant and garbage. So the so few institutions that mention it are irrelevant and wrong, dumb. Mm. And 
then nobody else actually mentions it. Also, we um, have a kind of inevitability bias, if that's a term that I'm mm. just coining and making a term. Uh, the, the 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 way that things have the, the way that things did unfold in the Cold War was the way that they were going to unfold right. in the Cold War, and so therefore the risk can't have been as bad as we thought that it was. Um, just because we happen to inhabit the future, which is not a smoldering ruin of a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And that's even sort of an ignorance sort of result there. Again, that returning to, are we just a chatbot of it's drawing causation from bad data um, where we see that and we're not acknowledging like the number of, there was an atomic bomb that was dropped. It fell out of a plane yeah. um, that was being transported and it was because a door mechanism didn't work. So it just fell out. All the firing mechanisms failed and it was just one tiny little pin mechanism that stopped a giant hole being blown in the middle of America. Yeah. And like <laughs> a tiny pin separated mm. us from that future. And mm. that happened repeatedly. There's a famous mm. example of the, the Russian who saw like a, there was a sonar, a, a, a yep. radar detection and, um, and, and saw the signal was instructed fire. It's that's the nuke that's being headed to us from the Americans fire immediately. And it, it wasn't. Um, and he refused um and probably saved us all yeah um, in fact we he couldn't have this podcast without well. it yeah exactly ended up the chain where it would have been where he suspected that that uh, i think khrushchev would have uh i don't right. remember who it was brezhnev or khrushchev would have probably uh, probably pulled the trigger um yeah it turned out to be a flock of birds and yeah, now we have the intellectual dark web because of that yeah, so you know right. ups and downs so you know we've got, we've got eric weinstein's galaxy brain uh and i i, I say that in not as ironic a way as i as it sounds so not as demeaning way as it sounds because i think he does have a galaxy brain um and that is probably the and so eric and you know sam harris and i would even put joe rogan and like mm -hmm. uh, douglas murray in this group of people who are uh i think have remained fairly consistently um credible intellectuals where i'm i'm always open to listening to yeah. what they think about something uh, and I, I, I my only my problems with like Murray is my my two problems that I would say one is a I loved his book neo uh, neoconservatism and I want him to write more stuff like that I, mm. I sort of I'm annoyed that he this is just this is sort of like a fan like when Dylan plugged in the electric guitar and he's like come <laughs> on you know so I kind of you know it it's made him a great living writing about culture war stuff and he does it extremely well so I can't bitch too much but I do wish he wrote some more you know. He wrote a, you know, wrote more cultural stuff. Wrote stuff yeah. about Oscar Wilde because he's he's yeah. extremely interesting. I think he I think he is a sort of uh, very. It's easy to compare him to a sort of right leaning Hitchens, and I think he is worthy of that um, comparison. But yeah. the thing that made Hitchens so great is that an essay collection can go between talking about foreign policy and about the Kurds, and that it can also mm. be an incredible piece about Salman Rushdie. Um, and we need more of the Rushdie side from from That's Murray. So my, interesting. My... I mean, I wonder whether or not Hitch would have been deranged by the the incentives that our social media landscape produce mm. today. I mean, it's arguable that Hitch was able to do that because the media that we consumed was not algorithmically selected for, and so he was able to bounce around from New Yorker articles to uh, you know wherever you know, the London Review of Books or whatever that would ping in his brain and then he'd, you know, follow a little rabbit hole and then clamber back up and then, you know, his vast brain would sort of find so many different interesting things, whereas so much stuff is now curated through, I guess, the narrowing prisms of algorithms and audience capture. And I would, yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily pin it on 
I wouldn't actually necessarily pin the difference on the algorithms as much. I mean, you can tangentially in terms of like Facebook at a Craigslist and then Facebook at all of the advertising money out of uh, media. Um, so the reason why, like the reason why you don't see my favorite essay by Hitch was a, a big sort of two of them are one is a tribute to blowjobs and sort of talking about it as the American handshake. And it's just a <laughs> hilarious, wonderful piece of writing. And the second was in that same spirit was him going away to, I think Graydon Carter asked him to go away to like a health spa. And the images alone are as good as the words, which is rare, particularly when yeah. words are the caliber of Hitch. And it's him on a, with sort of the facial smoking a cigarette with a glass of red wine sitting on a gym ball. And it's, it's incredible, right? But part of the reason that he could do this is because the publications at that time had an enormous amount of money where they could pay huge amounts for freelance articles and you go do these big pieces. Um, like, you know, mm. I would love to do more pieces like that. Um, yeah. To do pieces yeah. like that. That is, that is this, this is his work specifically is why I fell. And, and David Foster Wallace's too, mm. is, is the reason I fell in love with writing. Um, yeah. And it's really, really hard if you don't have a trust fund. Yeah. Uh, and which it's is why good. so many in this industry have a trust fund. Yeah. Um, but, um, so I think that's actually a, a bigger thing. I also think that, he had such an interest because he covered so many things. He had so many um, interests, which I think is a really, I, I think actually is a key distinction between someone like someone like Weinstein actually and and Rogan and Ruben, where I think Rogan and Weinstein are and yourself are, are interested in a wide range of topics as mm. well as culture war stuff. Mm. Whereas mm. whereas Ruben's and, and Tyler Cowen, I think is also a brilliant example. Oh, yeah. He's someone who's just yeah. a genius of the highest caliber on an infinite number of subjects um, yeah. where and curious in them. Like he, he mm. knows so much about them because he is interested in all of them. And I think mm. one of the great issues for, for Ruben is he's not particularly interested in very many things whatsoever. No. Um, so I think because Hitchens was so interested in so many things, it may, meant he had a great social life connected to so many interesting people. Mm. And also he was in, infamous for being very uh, financially um, improper, not, not, very good he published new essay collections and books like this again essay collections think of the past but he published new ones because he would spend all the money between them and would have to get a new book deal um and like and so because of that i think that he had his material distractions in a way that i don't think twitter would necessarily replicate so i i would maybe this is my bias towards hitchens love <laughs> i tend not to think he would be deranged by the internet in a way that's Some nice. Maybe he would be Tyler. Tyler's a good example of a person who's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then maybe if, Tyler was 20 years, if it was 20, years younger, he would be, I, I, I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, um, I, I mean, no, Tyler I consumes say. as much as the internet as we do, like, or arguably more considering the, spe the speed true. that he can read. So yeah, I don't, um, yeah, I think yeah. also part of it's your, the way that you manage your information consumption. Um, I yes. think people just have a, I think people don't think, I think people swipe left on their phone and they get a Google feed. And then they go on Twitter and they think that they're just sort of getting news conveniently delivered for them. And they sort of assume that the way that a phone default gives them information um, is necessarily the best one for them. And it is very convenient, but it's sort of like teenagers, if you give them $100 and tell them to do the shopping, you're going to come back with many bags of crisps and lots of Coca-Cola and not much vegetables. And, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, and I think people just need to get more in a habit of... The free internet is over. You need to pay for good stuff. Otherwise, you won't get it. Um, 
and and you need to be more i think disciplined and curious where you need to if something isn't meeting a requirement you go i this is just showing me one thing you need to cut it more quickly or reduce it more quickly and you need to look for new things um mm. more readily like i think semaphore is the best thing to happen in news in about five years it's just so good for that the- aspect it's it is interesting. I mean, yeah, it's interesting to imagine uh, a Douglas Mur- a Douglas Murray who remains less. I mean, I I disagree with Douglas on a number of political issues. Um, he's much more conservative than I am. But I, I, think- I should quickly say too, my big issue with Murray, my second one that I, I meant to say was his sort of um, his going issue that you mentioned to him. You talked to him about on your podcast with him about sort of visiting Hungary and this sort of thing and his engagement with yeah. various things. And I understand, like, if I was invited to to Victor Orban, um, my guess is the sort of piece I would write, it would probably happen once. Um, but um, I've, I've always often wondered this, if I did a piece and Tucker Carlson never invited me on, my guess is I would probably say yes, but I would probably do so in a very Jamie Kershick and R- on RT way, where it is the one and only appearance and it goes right. up in flames. Um, so, I, so I disagree with him there, but I understand his explanation. And I think he, I think he says it in good faith too. Um, but I would... yeah maybe maybe I mean there's a there's a worrying footsie with authoritarianism on the right that, yeah you know, is he's also probably getting paid a shitload of money for these appearances yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very hard you know it's very it's hard when somebody it. offers you yeah. fifty grand in a nice hotel yeah. room to come and speak for a day for you to go yeah. oh no my dear old principles I really can't you know yeah, yeah. Um, um, you, but... since you mentioned David Foster Wallace I must mention mm. I went on a cruise in December. Ross and the entire time, all I could think of was a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Wallace's amazing essay about going on a cruise. It was, he was decades ahead of me on it, but uh, <laughs> it remains the seminal text of all cruising. It's incredible. If people haven't read it, they must go and seek it out, along with Consider the Lobster. His Consider the Lobster is his, his must, opus. Uh, yeah, his, I, uh, actually, credit. the really interesting one was um, I had. So I, I'm a big film buff. I used to see about 500 films a year. I've sort of toned it down to about 300 a year. And um, and I, I I never liked Terminator 2. I always found it... The, the, the genius of Terminator 1 is that you have... You are... It's a political parable of you have this Austrian-voiced tyrant, you know, vicious presence that's hunting down people, right? It's like a clear parallel to Nazism. And that's brilliant. It works so well because it makes a genre film out of this political thing. And then Terminator 2 is essentially saying, but what if we used it for our benefit? And I always found that really icky in a way that really was unpleasant. I'm not, you know, people want to say, like, let's get politics out of film and stop thinking about a political way. And there are people, uh, great critics who now think about things, films in an overly political way. But we also have to acknowledge that there are politics in films and that's important, you know. Uh, mm. why did you put politics in in starship troopers and it's like what are you talking about um so 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 i what always like to do with david foster wallace so the, this is where it goes back to david foster wallace is he wrote a essay where he talks about where he says terminator 2 is like this very fascistic thing and i was like thankfully someone someone hears me oh, wow. Wow. and wow. richard spencer did a film podcast once the white supremacist and he did two episodes and i i stumbled upon it somewhere in my deranged internet wanderings and the second episode was in Terminator 2. And I searched onto it and they're like, yeah, it's clearly true. He is a Nazi and they're hunting down Jews. And I'm like, okay, great. There you go. Got it. I'm, I'm not wrong. <laughs> they're just viewing it as great. They're like, yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm like, okay. Um, so, and then um, on the, I can't believe when we're talking about like Hitchens and 
Harry and uh, like uh, Eric Weinstein uh, and even Joe Rogan and Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looping us back to Marjit here because I, yes. I, it just pains me that the name Dave Rubin is even in any of these conversations. I, I remember, mm-hmm. I remember Milo Yiannopoulos was on mm-hmm. Bill Maher's show, and I've I've never seen Bill Maher be so stupid and foolish mm. than in his fawning over Milo mm. at this moment of cultural of the culture wars where Milo Yiannopoulos was putting on a big show about being this fabulous gay Brit who would walk through the streets of Muslim ghettos in Swedish cities atop a throne mm-hmm. uh, throwing prosthetic dildos out at you know conservative Muslims on a lark um, great prank, uh, you know. I I I, I applaud the stunt. <laughs> I like I like how your criticism. You like really hate that. That was great. That was, you know, just... that was a good moment. Let's face it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, a one trick pony with nothing nothing behind him. And when Milo was on Bill Maher's show, uh, Bill was uh, was like, you know, who you remind me of? Hitch. Yeah, that annoyed the crap out of me. And I thought this is nothing could be Hitch would think Hitch would call out this frivolous, like, you know, provocateur for the shallow attention seeking whore that he is. I mean, no one could be further. The only commonality is that they're both Brits. Uh, In in Bill's mind, that was enough. And for me, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say for me, Dave Rubin is Milo Yiannopoulos, Mm. but done with more uh, strategy. Uh, so that mm. he doesn't flame out so soon. And, I mean, they were friends, right? Okay, that's unsurprising. But uh, yeah, and and then there's so there's there's Dave and Milo, mindless uh, sheep who uh, who essentially absorb the uh, the reactionary ideas of the anti woke right and then become conventional right wingers fundamentally. But mm. you know, have just enough of an edgy provocateur about them to to still seem like they're not a stuffy Republican uh, congressperson. Mm-hmm. Then you've got people who are brilliant and who've been derailed by conspiracy thinking, like Marjid and mm-hmm. Brett. And then you've got the cohort of people we were just talking about, the mm-hmm. Eric's and Joe's and Sam. Would you? I would, I would bundle Peterson in with the deranged people, would you? Yeah, I haven't focused on anything that he's done in the past mm. 12 months. The main criticism that I seem to see people throwing at him is that he's become very mean on Twitter, which is not mm. the same as becoming delusionally conspiratorial about facts of science. Mm. Like, it's not nice to retweet a Sports Illustrated cover photo of a plus size yeah. American woman and say, sorry, not beautiful. But that's different to me than thinking that from persistently arguing that the world is being taken over by a cabal of United Nations right. Nazis. I do, to, to be fair, like that isn't the example I would cite. I find that sort of more um, sort of boomer cringy. Um, sort of right. like, I'm not sure if you saw the other day when a bunch of people on the online right uh, said, you know, setting one's profile on Twitter to private would increase engagement or something. Um, and Ben did this and then uh, Jordan commented underneath ben i can't retweet you anymore and it's like oh oh no that's that's, Wait, that's what ben, the private function does uh, ben shapiro tweeted um you know tr- did this set it to private and tweeted out i'm doing this and then underneath it jordan was like it was true thought that yeah this private and look it may well be i don't i don't really oh. know my, my suspicion my suspicion on it is that you it became a meme 
that doing this worked. Therefore, when people yeah. did it and had seen other people doing it and had liked people doing it, therefore they got it further recommend recommended. And right, I see. They were comparing it with just general, you know, Twitter. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Says Ben, I can't retweet you. Retweet anymore. you. Yeah, which is the entire function of the private. That's yeah. just what it does. You know. So I think exactly. that example is just people. Somebody not quite understand you know the, so the what not beautiful Peterson, but what has yeah I, I find more like the the elliot page thing and and where it's not it's you know i i couldn't really care about somebody dead naming an actor um person i don't care that doesn't bother me but um no i mean like i i wouldn't do it i'm just saying like that doesn't that doesn't that i mean doesn't, the whole trans thing just deranges people on on both right. sides it's but it's calling people like calling them like you know barbaric you know the the words that he uses to describe them goes beyond in the same way of like the ribbon uh the way that ribbon talks about vaccines or the war in ukraine where you yeah, go right. there's a difference between somebody saying listen we need to be a lot more scrupulous about the money that's going to war in a mm. country that has been infamous for corruption I actually don't agree with that. I think that basically any cent you send there is a worthy investment for democracy, and I would be mm. happy to send endless amounts of weapons and money, mm. frankly. But there's mm. a legitimate argument against that. Like, that's a healthy argument. That's a very different thing of going, this greedy welfare queen, Zelensky, parades in here showing off his tidy, you know, like, and stuff like that, which is just, yeah, you know, yeah. and then Fauci is demonic and, you know, this satanic, you know, that gavin newsom's a psychopath who you know blah 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 blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and there's a difference where it's not simply where somebody is being nasty on twitter and that somebody's online persona is sort of a, a far more deranged sort of oversourced version of themselves it's where th the focus is so solely in this very intense way that it is reflecting a set of beliefs that are attached to that do you know what i mean it's not yeah it's not me yeah. going you know if i see um, you know, a new jacket that came out from the new uh, Chanel show, and I think it looks fantastic. I'm like, that's amazing! And exclamation yeah. mark. And I didn't literally out loud said when I looked at it, go, "Oh my god, that's amazing!" On my laptop, probably not. Um, mm. But but no, in I mean, the same way, also, you know, yeah, I, I mean, they're quieter, uh, one, but still. One way in which this comes out again with trans issues is that you know there seems to be uh, a desire on the right to portray all uh, trans surgery as quote unquote mutilation. Right especially right. if it's done, uh, you know, on people, I don't know, under the age of 18 or something. Mm -hmm. um, this elides the fact that there is a, a, a small cohort of people and it always has been everywhere, as, as far as we can tell, who really do truly feel like they're in the wrong body, who really do genuinely feel like they right. cannot live with themselves in the sex that they were assigned at birth. And this is a genuine phenomenon. And this, uh, to, to say that treating those people is always and everywhere evidence of mutilation by criminal like physicians right. is just is hysterical uh, you know you can you can have concerns about the the inadequacy of our mental health provisions for people who might be wavering or for people who aren't in that cohort but might all of a sudden exhibit uh, you know claims of gender dysphoria at or, or at even simply that people are the medical like 12 or 13 Right, or simply that medical institutions were too um, enthusiastic, even that yeah. it's not even. You can say that like somebody needs antidepressants, but if you go into a doctor and you're saying feeling a bit down, and they go, "Okay, here is X number of pills," you go, "Okay, that's probably not necessarily the best response to be so um, eager." Right, but you it know, it can be. That, yeah, it doesn't mean right. that, that 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 doctor is uh, you know is a criminal. Um, no, they might be misguided. They might be too swept up in 
a particular medical fad. Um, right. Anyway, I, I want to let you go eventually, Ross. What? What? How, where does all this play out in your view? I mean, you spent more time than anybody else thinking about the, this confluence of people and the forces that are motivating them and the ways in which they're being deranged. Um, what's the What's the five year or ten year prognosis? Um, I think it it depends on the person. Um, I think, I think Majid is more likely to follow the Milo route in terms of someone who gets so severe and in their views um, and associations that it's just become sort of impossible um, for them to make their way back in a in a reasonable way where people would understand them. Like I think Kanye is a more salvageable person given. He's clear, like in Kanye's case, that you have someone who is clearly a genius of the highest caliber, also is clearly mentally unwell at the highest level. I wouldn't um, call Kanye a genius in the strict intellectual term of genius. No, but, no, no, not in that, but a creative genius master, at least. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas it's harder to it's harder to just separate out Majid's turn from just who he is. Um, in a way, you know what I mean. Even if even mm. if that's not true, uh, in a way that like. Um, you know that Kanye's anti-Semitism, like his bipolar, is also him. Um, yeah. So, but but simply we we like to separate these things out because if something is unwell, we like to think that people can get healed. So simply mm. socially, he has a easier path back, even though the conduct is more extreme. Um, for someone like Jordan Peterson, I think I don't see Jordan becoming more moderate or anything. I think that. Um, I think that the money is too good. I think he he earns. If you think like Stephen Crowder was getting offered fifty million over four years to be on the Daily Wire, one yeah. imagines that jo- yeah, one imagines that Jordan Peterson is pr- probably that or higher, um, I mean, likely it, higher. And this is such a shame and such a case of squandered opportunity. It reminds me of what you were saying about Douglas Mur- Douglas Murray could be Christopher Hitchens if he mm-hmm. just expanded his worldview. Um, and talked about more things than just the culture wars. I mean, Jordan Peterson has had an invaluable impact on millions of young men yeah. who are just craving some sense of uh, someone to to speak to the highest version of themselves rather than denigrating them as the, as the most worthless version of themselves. Like, you know, stand tall with your back up straight, clean up your room. Like these old fashioned as the kind of patriarchal figure of like, get your shit in order, stop blaming other yeah. people uh for for what's wrong in your life take responsibility for yourself dust yourself off and keep on trying like these are invaluable messages and if they end up getting subsumed in a miasma of kind of culture war hysteria and bitterness it's going to be a real shame i do think i do think for those aspects of peterson because the advice is sort of ever present it's both ancient and 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 timeless and these sort of things um that much of that is not simply Peterson's intelligence and wisdom there. It is also charisma. Um, and charisma is more easy to find new versions of. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I would be hopeful to think that you could find people who are, you know, similarly thoughtful who come to prominence in some way. And I think you do in different communities. They tend to be sort of attached to other things. You, you know, you're either yoga instructor who also has this stuff or a meditation instructor you know sam has some of the stuff with his meditation um 
And so I think this, and that it can be charismatic figures in other ways that also carry these truths. And because, um, because, because that was the main appeal in these ways for Jordan, I think that that may just be picked, the baton may be picked up by another. Um, the, yeah. But I, I don't see him, uh, like I, pos- I positively reviewed his second book in the American Conservative. And, you know, like he's a, one of the, I think chapter 10, and it's this thing about suicide. And it's one of the, like I think it's just one of the most beautiful, um, sort of like important things I've read in a long time. Um, it's just really a really thoughtful and honest engagement with it. Um, mm. But also, like that book, sort of is six chapters of sort of trudgery through sort of <laughs> where the where the first book is really clearly written. Um, you could see that he was different by the second book, where there's right. a couple of like three chapters of real greatness. And then a couple of chapters of just some oddity in there. And then mm. six of just like, why this is sludge going into my brain. Yeah. Um, so um, with Eric, I think Eric, uh, because of the, the teal coupling, um, you know, like he recorded a full season of The Portal, a season three. He did a full conversation with Michael Malice. He did a full conversation with Dave Rubin um, for like three hours uh, where they get into it apparently. Um that's not necessarily the one I'm really eagerly wanting to listen to, but yeah. um, but there's a full season of the portal out there that's been recorded apparently and hasn't oh, been really? released. Yeah, oh. yeah, a season three. Um, and he's you know, and and he he drifted. He seemed to drift away from Twitter and get useless for a bit. Less so now, he seems to use it a bit more again. Um, but I mean, I guess my broader question, Ross, is is less like where does this ragtag cohort. team of yeah of people find themselves and more like do the factors that have given rise to the derangement of this cohort of people or some of them a disproportionately worryingly large number of them do those factors keep getting worse in the future and do we see more and more promising dissenters derail or do we find a way to push back against or disincentivize audience capture and conspiratorial thinking like can the mainstream media can we in the mainstream media create a big enough space for diverse ideas that we sort of crowd out the appeal of these more alternative conspiratorial voices or is that is that the trend now and we just have to live with it no i'm i tend you know as Earlier, I mentioned AI, you know, at risk and nuclear war and how it's all seconds away. But I tend to remain relatively optimistic about the future. Um, <laughs> With the exception I, of the nuclear apocalypse, it's going to yeah, be Yeah, apart, like, listen, apart from that, like, mm. we're all blown into smithereens. No, um, no I, I, d- I do tend to be optimistic about these things. And I think the media is, in some senses, the media is a really bad place. And it's actually got worse over the last sort of year and a half in terms of... Um, money is just less of it um, with the ads price decline uh, within a bunch of different sectors it just means that that affects media and that affects the people writing and the kinds of things that get written um, and there are areas that really genuinely suck and I don't see improving very soon um, things like in entertainment video game coverage is terrible will remain terrible uh, like IGN had a thing where they were asking for freelancers and they would pay like $10 and it's like are you kidding me um how how do you expect to have good quality for that when somebody wow. working in Aldi for an hour can earn more? Like, yeah. what do you what do you want about? Yeah. Um, and and that sucks because it's like a huge industry and it's undercovered. Um, there, 
I, but, but I also, <laughs> I sound so negative for someone who is saying that I'm optimistic. <laughs> um, and so to spin the second negative point, which is that the money does suck and I don't really see it improving that soon. And it means that people do have to venture into alternative ways to make income if they don't have a trust fund. Um, now that could be good in some ways because it means more young authors. It's easier to get a book deal than ever before, as far as I'm aware. And you know, you have people like Coleman who make a good living from their podcast and their book deal, um, which is Coleman Hughes, uh, and that's great. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, I will hope. I'm hoping to be able to make a living doing this. Um, so I obviously, I obviously don't believe it's the doom and gloom to a level that I'm betting against it. Um, that I'm betting that way. I mean, this is like when people ask about. Um, I, I forget who said it, but it was somebody over a dinner table was talking with this person about um, whether they thought China was going to invade Taiwan next year. And mm. they just asked, like, have you bought war bonds then for Taiwan? Mm. I was like, sorry. Mm. I was like, you're a, you're a wealthy person. If you really believe this, why aren't you buying war bonds? So to a degree, I have Can to... you buy war bonds right now? <laughs> Listen, I bought, I bought shares in Lockheed Martin um, earlier, a while ago, right? And I bought them because Michael Burry, I noticed, had bought a huge position on it. And I saw that the price had tanked over like 2021 or 2020. It really tanked. And I was like, fuck it. Why not? I'll put a hundred pound into this. And about a month later, the war in Ukraine was declared and it like tripled in value. I was like, wow, I am the, I am the, I am the world's poorest war profiteer. Um, But, um, but no, so for that sense, like, I wouldn't be speaking to if I really thought that it was doom and gloom because I would go and do something more valuable with my time. I do think that there's a lot of hope in this area. I think it's a lot of young people who are really talented and interested and curious. And I think that that curiosity is paying off more. Like I think in the, one of the reasons why um, one of the big failures in social media stars is that people who lost for a long time lost because they're authentic. So if you try to chase the nearest dollar, you know, quite quickly and try to exploit your, influence um i think it'll temporarily earn you a decent amount of money but it makes you seem very inauthentic in a way that someone mm. like casey neistat who continues to have huge influences by putting out relatively little content it's because he's remained authentic and you know you don't sell out in a way um so i think people who have that sort of um gut instincts to stay curious and stay authentic i think that can pay off um in an alternative economy I also think that the rise of newsletters is a really, really helpful change within the news media. Um, as I praised Semaphore earlier, Axios does a similar thing. I think Barry with the free press, they're doing amazing work. And they're doing it because part of what I said earlier, that there's this over-reporting problem of publications that are just ch- chasing SEO. And mm. that that places like Barry, places like Semaphore, that isn't relevant. You know, it's not it's not simply that it isn't relevant. It's like you can't even it's not newsletters are bad for SEO. Like if, if it's hard for you to measure in the same way. Um, so there, it should be shooting yourself in the foot. And yet, no, it's actually something really valuable that is really helpful. And I, like, I love the way that the Atlantic pivoted more towards newsletters. I think yeah. it was to benefit there too. So I see more um, curiosity with different mediums. I think people are becoming more comfortable paying for content. Um, like I pay for, the Dispatch, Airmail, um, New York Times, The Atlantic, and Vogue. I think I think I may pay some, some more. And oh, and the Times of London. Um, and it's like that's like a that's a pretty broad range. I need to pay for Barry's as well. Mm. <laughs> mm. But um, but like and and I think that's just like yeah, that it sucks to spend money. 
nobody likes it. Um, but in the same way that I'm happy to, you know, I, I think you should think about it in the way of a mechanic. Like if you, in terms of your car is valuable to you to get you places, your mind should also be valuable to get you places and inform you and teach you how to live. And the question is, if I'm getting all this for free, if, if you go to a mechanic and he seems a bit dodgy, he says, yeah, I'll do it for a fiver. And it's like, this is a gearbox repair. Like, how would you possibly, like, you you wouldn't trust it. You wouldn't take the $5 risk. Like, why would you bother? Mm -hmm. And then people see this endless flood of free content online and you think, you know, you know that's just the norm. Um, so I think that's healthy. Um, and I think because more money will go to alternative institutions, I think places like the New York Times and the Washington Post are going to have to up their game. Like uh, Michael Barbaro of the New York Times put out this tweet um, after the whole um, George Santos scandal where he basically said, um, if more people subscribe to the Times, then we would have caught this before the election. And I mm. kind of intuitively want to say, fuck off. Like, you're the biggest news organization on the planet. Yeah, don't bribe People me. subscribe to you because you do that. Fuck off. Yeah. People don't owe you money to do your job. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. not specifically targeting, but like, I'm, that sounds very aggressive, but I'm sure he's a lovely man. I listen to the daily often. But my, <laughs> point being, my point being is that was a bad tweet, man. And that was a very bad intuition. And I think yeah. people are, I think the sort of tightening of wastes at some of these other publications um, can be helpful because I think mm -hmm. it'll get them sharper. And, and also from a freelance perspective, I can tell you, new publications pay way better for freelancers yeah, um, right. like yeah. there there are publications i just i you know i won't bother with because it's just like my like it just doesn't make sense economically you kind of go come on and and you know there are great places out there and they do you know one of my favorite is i'm doing work for them uh, works in progress which are an independent publication that they got bought by stripe uh, the finance company earlier i think earlier this year last year and they release an issue. They release an edition once a month with like 20 articles and these big in-depth articles. And they're fantastic. And there's a model that works for them. And it's partly because they don't flood the zone with shit, to use the Bannon expression. They mm. just do a, a select drop of quality stuff. And because they do a limited amount, scarcity works and people pay attention to it. You know, there's so many great articles yeah. I see in publications and I go... You know, even in like New York Times where, you know, I see something and it's great and it comes out in one vertical and it should be, it should be the one thing people read that day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they don't, I mean, airmail, similar concept works really well because they just do like a Saturday edition essentially where it comes together. And that's why like Jamie Kershick's big piece he did the other uh, week on uh, Army Hammer. I was like, yeah, that deserved to be the front of the page that deserved right. to be the front of the paper. And it was fantastic. And it was because they paid him for the time to do his job well and be able to take that time. Mm. Um, and he's incredible, which helps, but you know what I'm saying? So I think there are, I think there really, there are really optimistic signs. Um, and if I have dropped out of this and I'm selling crypto courses by the end of the year, then, you know, <laughs> you'll know I don't believe that anymore, but and so long as I'm still working. And of course, you the know. other the other subscription that you'll have in addition to Barry Weiss's is to uncomfortable conversations, which is absolutely uh, use of your use of your funds. Ross, it's uh, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate it. It's been where should people really where lovely. should people follow you? Well, that'll all be in the stuff, but tell them anyway. Pro probably 
get off social media. No, I'm kidding. Um, follow me. You can follow me at that Ross Chap on uh, Twitter or Instagram, and then um, my Substack is RossAndersonWrites.com, and that way it's uh, it's you could pay money if you want. It doesn't give you anything extra. It's just a way that if you want my articles sent to you in a newsletter, um, you'll get that. You can get them that way. Thanks, Ross. Thank you, Josh. Thank you.